Hello, and welcome to another episode of Something Rhymes with Purple. This is a podcast presented by me, Jazz Brandreth, and my friend... Susie Dent. I'm a bit slow there. Susie Dent. <laughs> well, she'll be <laughs> beat behind me, but that, that's because she's down the line. Oh, yeah. She's in Oxford, uh, close to the Oxford English Dictionary, where she used to work, and which is now her constant study. She, of course, is uh, famous for being the person in Dictionary Corner on the Word Game Countdown, Words and Numbers Game Countdown, on Channel 4. I'm Giles Brandreth, and I'm here because I'm her admirer. I'm one of her groupies. I agree. What's the origin of the word groupie? That's what we do on this show. We we meet every week and we talk about words and language. We explore the power of language and where language comes from, where it's going to. Groupies. I say one of your groupies. What's the origin of that expression? What does it mean? It means that you want to belong to that group, to the in-crowd. And it first started with military slang, as so often. So it started in the RAF. And a groupie then was a kind of group captain. So that kind of makes sense. But then quite soon after, about a decade after, it meant a person associated with a core group of famous people. So they're kind of on the periphery and want to be on the inside. And then in the 60s, of course, that's when, you know, that's when the groupie really took took over. And Because uh, they pursued pop groups. Yeah, rock and roll groups. if you were a Beatles fan. Yes. You were Beatlemania. Exactly. The people who ran after them, and the people particularly ran after the Rolling Stones, they were their groupies. Exactly. So it started in America, I think, with rock and roll. And then, as you say, it kind of, you know, the Beatles had to have groupies. And they've stayed ever since. So we're constantly using words that we don't know, whether we know, but we don't know where they come from, like groupie. I was using one this morning, a phrase. I I was on my daily walk. I do 6,000 steps a day. More about my tricycle later. (laughs) But I was doing my 6,000 steps when I stumbled over a paving stone Ah. and I almost went for a Burton. Mm. Then I thought, what's the origin of going for a Burton? Mm. And I thought, Susie will know. What is the answer? Uh, Going for a Burton, well, the the best theory for that is that it goes back to Burton's Ale that was produced in Burton-upon-Trent. And there was an ad, a poster at the time that said, gone for a Burton. So if somebody was missing um, from a particular place, he would just leave a note or she would leave a note saying, gone for a Burton. And then it became again, military slang, probably the RAF when, um, it's a bit sad and black humour really, but when a plane went down in the water, it went down in the drink. And so people said they had gone, the pilot had gone for a Burton. So it's quite sad beginnings, that one. What I love, and listeners should know this, is we don't prepare this. (laughs) It may be clear that we don't prepare this. But the point is, when I tuned in to Susie a few minutes ago, she had no idea that I was going to ask her about Garn Burton or groupies. She just has all this inside her colossal brain. I have have a lot of rubbish stuff in there as well. And sometimes it doesn't come to the fore. So sometimes I have lethologica, which is when I can't think of the right word for the right moment. In fact, that happens to me. What's that word? Lethologica. L-E-T-H-O, hang on, lethologica, O-L-O-G-I-C-A. It's the inability to find the right word at the right time. Now, what's the letho part? Because I thought lethe usually gave us sleep. Yes, what does letho quite right. So us? the river Lethe in Greek mythology was the one that made you sink into oblivion and to forget. And that oblivion could be sleep or it could be the erasing of all memories of the past. And that's why when you are lethargic, it looks back to that river Lethe because you just you have nothing left almost. You are kind of devoid of everything, including energy. You see, one. this is the joy in a way, I hope, of this podcast, because 
we want it to be fun, but also it's incidentally educational. I learn things. Uh, so lethologica. Yes. Lethologica means forgetting the word that you thought you had. You just can't bring it to mind. Exactly. And do you remember tartle? Do you remember tartling? Going, going I do off on remember a the word we just matter. Tartling is good. It's nice. We get. It's like rambling. We are rambling free. <laughs> We're going down the odd cul-de-sac. Remind me about tartle. Yes. So tartle. I think it's one of my trio. Once tartle is a great Scots word, and it means hesitating before introducing someone because you've forgotten their name. Oh, that's happening. That happened to me once with my wife. What had happened was there was a group of ten people, and I'd done brilliantly. I introduced the first nine, getting their names absolutely spot on. I thought I'm genius, and then I got to this last one, and I said, and here is this. This beautiful creature, this amazing woman, this fantastic. And somebody said, stop being so patronising. I said, oh, well, she's my wife. I could not remember her name. That's bizarre. Quite terrifying for just for a moment. Now, one of the problems with remembering words is there's so many more to remember than there used to be because the language is growing all the time. What is the size of the English language today as opposed to, say, 500 years ago in Shakespeare's time? Gosh, I was really hoping you weren't going to ask me that question. Well, it's a really boring answer when everyone says, how many words are there in the English language? The sort of smart answer to that would be three, the English language. But moving on from that, it's almost impossible to give you an answer, Giles, because what is a word? I mean, would you say that run runs, running, runner are all different words or part of the same word. And then it becomes impossible. But there are, compared with Shakespeare's time, of course, there are sizably more words because the language grows. And he probably, we talked about this when we talked about Shakespeare, didn't we? And how many words he had at his disposal compared with ours. And I think it was probably about half of what our daily vocabulary, well, not daily vocabulary, but our entire repository of vocabulary is today. You know, what he did with it was quite amazing. This is extraordinary. We have twice the vocabulary that Shakespeare had, but we can't even write half as well. it's true. Now, what I want to find out from you today is how words get into the dictionary. Mm. For example, this week I've come across a couple of phrases that I think will end up in the dictionary. Well, one will end up in the dictionary, taking the knee. Yes. Familiar words, but the expression taking the knee will appear in the dictionary, I imagine, because 100 years from now, people will need to know what that meant, how it came about. But there's another expression I came across this week that made me smile, which was getting on your wicks. Oh, yes. Which is an amusing play on words. And it's it's what unnerves you or irritates you when there are people next door who are playing Joe Wicks too loud with their children in the morning, mm-hmm. always getting on my wicks. Mm-hmm. Now, that, I think, won't get into the dictionary because it's amusing. Who decides at the OED? I imagine once a year they decide we've got a new edition coming up next year. What are we going to put in the dictionary? Or maybe now it's rolling because of it being all on the, the internet. Uh, how do they? Who decides whether and when taking the knee goes into the OED? I'm just checking actually, Charles, because it might already be in. I remember doing a program with Channel Four back it was 2017 where they were looking at all the new words that were bubbling under and actually then starting to simmer and um, I'm extending a really bad metaphor but we talked about taking the need then and I'm oh. just looking to see I'm sure it will be in current dictionaries I'm just looking to see if it will be in the OED because as we know that takes a little longer because once a word goes in, it never, ever comes out. I can't find it at the moment, but I, I might have a look for that later because I wouldn't be surprised. That's interesting. That's rather like two things. Once the word goes in, it doesn't come out. It's a little bit like who's who. Once uh, you get into who's who, they don't drop you. Really? 
Uh, yeah, they, what they about if you're you disgraced? Or, I mean, is there an no. unpersoning involved ever? No, there isn't unpersoning okay. involved because it's a, it's a work of reference. It's not judgmental. Mm. They're not censoring. If you're in, you're in. Uh, similarly, do you remember the late, great David Frost? Did you know? I didn't know him, Sir but David I know Frost? you talk, you've talked about him before and I know exactly who you mean. Yeah. He was a pioneering broadcaster, started out in the 1960s. And he was also a very nice, generous human being. And he gave parties, legendary parties. And one of the great things about his party is once he invited you, he always invited oh. you. He never dropped Gosh, anybody from the list. huge. Did you have to keep Well, fortunately venues? for him, people... People did die off. The venue was vast at the end, you know, a huge public garden. Um, but people did drop off the perch. So that's a good rule. So once you invite people, don't drop them. Once the word is included. Uh, so how does a word, how does a new word get into the dictionary? The, the thing about lexicography is that its terminology is incredibly off-putting and really quite cold, which I think is a shame because lexicography is anything but, you know, boring and sterile. And so I'm about to use a really horrible word, which is corpora. And a corpora is the plural of corpus. And each dictionary publisher has access to usually its own corpus. And inside corpus meaning body, inside this body of data is the most amazing, fascinating material. So into it will be fed, you know, from evidence of modern writing. So it could be text conversations, it including emojis. It could be, you know, track room conversations. It might be a transcript of a conversation overheard on the street, right down to scholarly journals, historical novels, literature, etc. So as much written evidence as dictionary publishers can find, are fed into these corpora. And this is what dictionary makers use to write their dictionaries. So say, um, let's think of a... Of, well, you, the reason I wanted to talk about new words today, we should say, is that I remember, remember hearing you on an interview, I think, saying that you love the new word YOLO. And I thought, Giles, that's been around for too long. <laughs> we need to talk about new words. It's new to me. When you're my age, uh, anything is new that's happened in the last 10 years. Oh, well, take YOLO. Obviously, you only live once and it's a great philosophy in life. And I'm sure it's yours because of the energy with which you tackle life. But, you know, say that was a new word that was bubbling under a dictionary maker would look to see how often it's being used, first of all, how many different contexts it's being used in. So it wouldn't be any good if it was just being used on one website, because then it would probably be the invention of that website owner. Then which other words it's being used with? So is it being used as a verb? So could you say, oh, I really YOLO'd last week? Or is it just an acronym and it will remain a noun, acronym, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So we will study all the evidence of how a word is used. And if it looks like it has longevity and it is being used by enough people in enough different contexts, then it has a very good chance of going in. But the one thing I would say is that I'm always asked, is it a word? You know, people say, is such and such a word? And the answer to that is always, yes, anything is a word. I think what they want is an authority because we don't have an academy um, or authority governing English and how it develops. So what they really mean is, is it in the dictionary? In other words, is it legitimate? But as you know, and as we've talked before, dictionaries reflect how we speak. They are a democracy. They don't tell us what is right and what is wrong. Is YOLO in the dictionary? Definitely. YOLO is in the dictionary, as is FOMO and all of those. In the olden days, when I first became familiar with the Oxford English Dictionary, it was uh, then the editor, and I know I've mentioned him to you before, was a lovely man called Dr. Robert Birchfield, yes. who was a New Zealander. Yes. We're going back to the 1960s, 1970s. Yeah. And I remember he told me that he had a team of readers yes. 
around not just the British Isles, but the British Commonwealth and America. And they were distinguished people. I remember one of them, I met her, was the novelist Marganita Lasky. Mm. She wrote a wonderful novel called Little Boy Lost. People are looking for a lockdown read. I recommend this. It's a post-war novel set in Europe by Marguerite Lasky. Anyway, older listeners will recall this lady. She was on things like the Brains Trust in the 1950s, 1960s. A highly intellectual woman who I'm sure read the Times Educational Supplement, the Times Literary Supplement and The Guardian. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she would cut out, uh, when she saw a word that was unusual, she would cut it out and put it on a postcard and send it to him. And he showed me these boxes mm. he had of postcards from around the world. Yeah. And that's how they, in those days, we're going back 50 years, evaluated the currency of new words. That's right. So it's a modern way of doing that thing. Yeah, they were called slips. Um, you can still find the slips from the very first Oxford English Dictionary. They're, they're in the Oxford University Press Museum. And, you know, they just, they had to, they took up so much room, you can only imagine. And of course, when a new record of a word was found, the editor had to go back to that particular slip and then write in a new thing. So it is incredible how much digitization has really helped lexicography. But, you know, and in so doing also, the definitions have become more and more objective because Johnson, Samuel Johnson would, you know, either be very rude about the Scots, as we know, or he would call you would define strumpet as a sort of a harridan and a woman you do not want to consort with, etc. And in modern lexicography, you don't have any of that. It's all really objective. And that's partly because we have all this evidence now, which is, yeah. And also, great. is there less intellectual snobbery? Why do I think, and I may have got this wrong, that Virginia Woolf's father mm. was involved in the early days of the Oxford English Dictionary. Am I imagining this? I don't know. That's one I didn't know. Tolkien worked worked on the Oxford English Dictionary. This uh, is before that, because yeah, the OED began in the 1890s, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. Tolkien, Julian Barnes, Salman Rushdie. I mean, lots of really, you know, celebrated figures have worked or have begun their, their sort of careers on the Oxford English Dictionary. What I'm asking, is it now more inclusive more generous. I've just got a feeling that a hundred years ago, perhaps there was certain words wouldn't have been thought of. I guess that's true. Not so much slang. Johnson didn't include slang and nor did the, um, you know, the early lexicographers, unless it was a dictionary of slang. And we have to remember that the very first dictionaries were dictionaries of criminal slang. But no, you're right. You wouldn't have found a swear word, for example. And now you can freely look up whichever word you want, because let's face it, a lot of people want to look up exactly those words. And if it's slang also, the whole idea of slang is that you can't really understand it because it's meant to be the tribal thing that other people can't comprehend. Now, do you think that the coronavirus crisis will have introduced a lot of new words to the vocabulary? And which ones do you think will make the grade to the dictionary? Well, some have already gone in. So this is how quickly dictionary makers move now. When I started out at Oxford University Press, the standard amount of time that you would wait was about five years. That's not the case now. And I remember it beginning to change with Chav. Do you remember that? Yes. And Chav just exploded onto the scene in 2004. And it had to be explained. And it had to be what we would call glossed in um, in a dictionary which means defined. So now we move very, very quickly. And uh, things like 
WFH, working from home, flattening the curve, hot zone, social distancing, etc., have all gone into the Oxford's current dictionaries very recently. There will be others that actually been around for a, for a while. So quarantine we talked about, didn't we, coming from Phoenician dialect yes. in 40 days, because that was the original quarantine. Things like self-isolation. The whole idea of self-isolating because of a virus is about the 1940s. So some of them have just come back into currency. And that's how new words work. Not all new words are new. In fact, loads of them are just a recycling of a word that's either had a different meaning in the past or it seems to fit our new reality. So we bring it back. What would be your top two or three that you think might go in? Because I think the ones that I've enjoyed won't make it in the end. I mean, I've loved the expression furlough Merlot. Um, <laughs> yes. The amount of drink that we're consuming during this troubled time. Yes. Are there any that will go in, do you think? And what are the more light-hearted ones? Um, as I say, because quite a lot of the COVID vocabulary is already in there and has just gone in. I think COVIDiot might ha- might stand a chance. So somebody who behaves I like that one. stupidly. But things like clap hazard, you know, we talked about that. The clap hazard is the person who, when applauding the NHS, just stood a little bit too close to you. I don't think those will. How, I mean, of the new words that do come in mm. and, and last, quite a few of them have been portmanteau words. Yes. Those words that are called portmanteaus because in Victorian times there was a portmanteau that was an overnight case called portmanteau because in it you put your coat, portmanteau, carry coat, manteau. And we've discussed before, you know, Lewis Carroll, how he pioneered them with words like galumph combining gallop and triumph. But there have been more recent ones. Any recent ones? Yes. The one that I quite like, do you remember we talked about anticipointment, really looking forward to something so much and then being disappointed when it actually comes. Or it can be really looking forward to something, but actually knowing it's going to be a bit of a disappointment. And so you get that kind of pre-gret um, as another one of kind of regretting it before it even happens. I also like absolutely. If someone asks you if you're going to do something, you can just say absolutely, which is a definite maybe. But putting portmanteau together and, and blends, as they're called, is one of the most productive mechanisms for creating new words. So I would say they account for probably about at least 10, 15 percent of all new words. And only one percent, Giles, only one percent of new words are creations by one person in one moment of time. You know, as in entirely new, they haven't taken an existing word and put something together with another one. They've actually created something entirely new. And that is very, very rare. What about Velcro? Do you know the origin of that? I think I do. No, I know it's a trademark. It's a portmanteau. What? It's velvet and crochet. Ah, OK. And of course, twerk. Twisting and working. Something and working, Twisting isn't it? and jerking. And jerking. And the queen of the twerk in the early days was Miley Cyrus. Yes. And as you know, I love to do a little bit of name dropping. No episode of this would be complete without it. Of course, (laughs) well, to say I met her, I travelled in a lift with Ah. her. I've travelled in a lift with some interesting people. Mm. And this was at the BBC. She was going in to do Radio 1, Radio 2. Uh, I was going as well. Uh, We went up and I showed her my twerk. And (laughs) she didn't say very much. (laughs) And in order to make conversation, I I tried to, she didn't know. The point is, she did not know the origin of the word twerk. She knew that she was the queen of twerks, but she didn't know. Are you telling me uh, you actually cut through the silence of a lift and said, hello, you don't know who I am, but I'm going to tell you the origin of twerk. Did it work that way? 
it did work a little bit that way. I did not need to say uh, you don't know who I am because she greeted me as though she did <laughs> know course, me. Uh, and it was at the height of the twerk craze. I did a little bit of twerking and uh, she said, oh, Oh, I don't think she said much more than that. I was, going to, I was going to pretend she said, oh, that's lovely, or isn't that cute? She didn't. She went, oh. And I said, do you know the origin of the word twerk? And she did say no. And then uh, the little doors opened her. and that was that. Yes. yes. So uh, I think the, the sum total of our conversation <laughs> was hello, oh, no, goodbye. <laughs> that so that's sums up my life with, with Miley Cyrus. Oh, Very good. Brilliant. Uh, what about, f- f- we must take a break, but fromage? Do you know that one? Fromage. Fake cheese? Vegan cheese? Yes. yes. Isn't that clever? It's vegan cheese is fromage. If any purple oh. people can recommend to me a really lovely vegan cheese, please could they let me know because I'm still on the hunt. This is what uh, Something Rhymes with Purple is all about. It's the lifestyle of Susie Kent. <laughs> and if you can help her, you just get in touch. It's purple at somethingelse.com, something without a G, because we like to be a little bit different. Purple at somethingelse.com is how you can get in touch with us. And um, I'll give you, after the break, the origin of this word. Snart. Snart. Mm. Please don't. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed with mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Imagine a world, a world just like our own, but importantly, not our own. Is it the alternate dimension, or are we? And does it have podcasts? The Last Post. Hi, I'm Alice Fraser, bringing you daily news from a parallel universe. It's a sweet, sweet dose of satirical news coverage, some of which will sound pretty familiar. He defended him, saying he broke the lockdown rules on a father's instinct. And I just think if Boris had shielded his as much as he's shielding Cummings, he might actually be in a position to give parenting tips. And some of it is just pretty weird. Air in space is becoming much clearer, Alice. And it's quite shocking <laughs> because there is no air in space. It's empty space. So join me every single day alongside great comedians from around the world, including Andy Zaltzman, Nish Kumar, Tiff Stevenson and Will Anderson. Good luck to you. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple, where Giles Brandreth and me, Susie Dent, or I, I should say, are talking about new words. Um, Because if there's one question I always get, whether it's in the countdown audience or um, emails or tweets, it is, can I get this word in the dictionary? Um, Giles, is there one that you're burning to have within the pages of the Oxford Dictionary? Snart. Yeah, tell us about snart. S-N-A-R-T. This is the word I want to have in the dictionary. It's it's a combination of sneeze and fart. It's when you, <laughs> as it were, break wind at both ends at the same time. It's to commit a snart. Oh, That's a through cough, remember? A through or thoracough. I do remember yes. that. I know, it's your Thurikoff. That's an old and cumbersome word, <laughs> Thurikoff. Yeah. Snart is short and snappy. Other people so will think? know a ruder variant on that, which involves different activities of the body, but let's leave that there. 
I want to get snart into the dictionary. I imagine it isn't. The hunting of the snart, the snark snark might be because it's in that yes. famous poem by Lewis Carroll. But also, you can be snarky, uh, but, can't you? Um, oh, is that is that does that go back to the hunting I of the think, snark? Sorry about that. Being snarky. Of my mouth, Matt. Um, I think I'm not sure. Actually, I think there might be different. Snarky to me sounds onomatopoeic, but I might be wrong. So I'm just looking now. It is monomatopoeic and it goes back to the 19th century. It's a sibling of German schnarken and eventually schnarchen, which means to snore. So it's a kind of snoring, snorting sound. And so by being snarky, you're being a bit snorty. Very good. So what chance have I got with snart and how do I get into the dictionary if I'm really Okay. Well, it's hard, this one, because... You cannot petition for a word to go in the dictionary and then, you know, get a thousand signatures or a million signatures and then get it to go in. What needs to happen is for people to use it. So usage is queen. You need to get lots of people using it in lots of different places, written and spoken, and to hopefully imbue it with enough meaning that it will become instantly recognisable to people. And the ruder equivalent of this, which I will now mention, is shard. And you can imagine what that means. That probably isn't in the dictionary, in the official dictionary, but you'll find it in the unofficial dictionaries. So I think, I'm not sure how much luck you'll have with that one, but people have in the past campaigned very vociferously to get a word in the dictionary. So do you remember I mentioned the um, British Potato Council who wanted to get rid of couch potato? And so they stood with placards outside the offices of the Oxford English Dictionary, couch slouch. They wanted to replace couch potato because they thought it was denigrating to the poor potato, which is a nutritious vegetable. So that was one that didn't work. But there was another campaign, which was by Soccer AM, I think, for the word bounce back ability to go in. So that was mm. a kind of resilience, really, of uh, of someone, whether it's a ball or a player or whatever. And they campaigned for bounce back ability to get in the dictionary. And uh, the campaign itself didn't work. But interestingly, it got picked up by enough people, the word, that it did eventually go in. So all is not lost. When I was... A little boy, I had a toy called Nozo. Mm-hmm. Now Nozo was taller than me when I was very small. He was three foot, three foot six. It was a plastic doll, like one of those Russian dolls where you keep opening the, you know, the, so it was a round Russian-like doll. It was a clown, clown's face, and it had a soft nose. And you punched the nose, and it fell over, and then it always bounced back, and it hit you. So you pushed it over, it came back and bopped you. <laughs> it, and it had bounceability. That sounds fun. So, what are words? Actually, so, fascinating. Bounce- just to finish off on bounce back ability, yeah. I thought it was because of the of the kind of increase in usage due to that campaign by Soccer AM. But looking at it now in the OED, as these editors so often do, they've dug and they've dug and they've dug and they've found earlier records than you might think. Oh. So there is a record of it going back to the 1960s. So there you go. It flew below the radar, a bit like chav that I mentioned earlier, that is at least 200 years old and actually was quite a nice term once upon a time. And then it suddenly comes back up onto the radar and it might have a new meaning or it might just suddenly become popular again. And that's very much how language works. Are there words and phrases from your family? Nozo is one from my childhood. Mm. If you bounced back, you were doing a nozo. Mm. Uh, are there words and phrases from your childhood or your family that you remember that were particular to the Dent household? 
Yes, I used one actually. I was um, talking to Scott Mills and Chris Stark from the ra- their Radio Five Live program this week, and I was talking about the podcast, and they they did this kind of is this true or false about your life, and they've just said we found the following facts about you. Are they true or not? And I was really worried about this, but actually most of them were true. And one of them was, did your dad break your leg while he was tickling you? And the answer was, yes, dad, you did. Because I hate being tickled with a passion. I just hate it. And, you know, there are two types of tickling, gargalesis and kinismesis. And gargalesis is the heavy kind, the one that really induces laughter. And I hate Mm. hate gargalesis. Anyway, he did break my leg and it was during something we called roughhousing. And so I said to Chris and Scott, did you call it roughhousing? And they said, uh, no. So that's what we called kind of mucking about in a sort of physical way. So it's like physical play fighting. But then there are the ones which I think are just born of the sweet things that kids say. So, for example, we always call Huddersfield FC, which is an English football team, Hugglesfield, because that's what my youngest still calls it. Things like that we have kept as a nod to their childhood. How about you? I don't think we do have any. Oh. I, I mean, curiously, I, I felt there should be some acorns. Remind us what acorns are. Okay, so acorn itself is a mishearing of acorn. And it's the sort of things, it's the slips of the ear. So it's something that you grow up thinking is one word, but actually you're completely mishearing another. For years, I thought God, you know, up in the sky, I thought he had a name. And I was asked once, what do you call God? And I said, well, my dad calls him Harold. (laughs) (laughs) And the teacher said, Harold, yes. I said, yes, because I've heard my dad. I know what's coming. The Lord's Uh, Prayer. Our Father. Yes, which art in heaven, Harold. Harold be thy name. So I thought it was, because I sort of heard this mumbling going on. Um, So actually, if anybody uh, has got an acorn like that, um, or what's a Mondegreen, by the way? Yes, this is what we'd love to hear, actually, from our listeners. Mondegreens are mishearings of song lyrics. And, ah, yes. Oh, God, we've all got some of those. So me going to a convent, it's quite similar to your Lord's Prayer. I was convinced for years that I was singing Lord of the Dance settee. But Mondegreen oh, itself, the word goes back. Well, maybe we'll leave that to the, because we're going to do a programme. Well, Mondegreen, look, yes, we, we covered Ed Corns, didn't we, one yes. of our very first episodes. So people can go back, actually. It's all there. Yeah. By the way, we've done 63, 64 episodes. You can go right back to the beginning. We covered acorns yonks ago, and we're going to be covering Mondegreens in a couple of weeks. But if people have got made-up words that were family words or phrases, ones that their family use, their friends use, um, we'd love to hear about them. And we are global. That's the joy (laughs) of Something Rhymes with Purple. We have a global audience. How do they communicate with us? Remind me. Well, um, the best thing to do to get in touch is to email purple at somethingelse.com. And as you said at the beginning, something does not have a G at the end of it. So it's somethingelse.com. Last week, and let me deal with some of the correspondence to do with wood lice. Oh my goodness. Because last week we had an email from Diana in Somerset who wanted to know why people call wood lice Billy Bakers. Mm. We didn't know, but we put a call out to you, the purple people, to see what you call them and whether anyone knows where Billy Bakers comes from. Sadly, no one yet can answer the Billy Baker question, but we've had some fascinating alternative names sent in. Karen in Aberdeen calls them Slaters, and this is backed up by Jim Wiggins in Dumbarton. Mm -hmm. Is that a Scottish thing? I mean, uh, not that... 
Aberdeen and Dumbarton are that close. That's really interesting slaters. Okay. I've got another one here. Ellie Muggleton. Mm -hmm. I'll give you all of these. Ellie Muggleton from Guildford called them cheesy bugs when growing Mm -hmm. up. And and she adds that she and her brother used to make Lego cities for the cheesy bugs to run around in. It's an amusing idea, isn't it? That's cute. Cockney Eric says, (laughs) growing up in Romney Marsh, they were known as monkey beetles. There are a few more. Chicky Pig is the phrase Selina Hazlitt from Devon is familiar with, whereas Alex Cook from the Mendip area of Somerset swears that woodlice are called Daddy Gramphers. Mm. Yeah. And finally, Rebecca Locke from North Hampshire didn't realise until she was 10 years old that the word woodlouse existed. Oh. They were always known as curly bobs oh, I love in that. her household. I love that. Um yeah, well, it's really interesting. As I say, I've done a I've done a bit of looking. First of all, I didn't know this, but there are forty different varieties of woodlice. Did you know this or woodlouse? No. Okay, no. Um, but actually, there's an even greater variety of names for them. So pigs come in a lot. There's slunker pigs, wood pigs, penny sows, and sow pigs. Why? I don't know. Maybe because they're thought of being quite cute. Who knows? In Cornwall, though, we get this idea of a kind of almost half pig and half grandparent because you get a grandma sow and then that grandparent kicks in, as one of our correspondents has said, and, and there's granddad gravies, granny greys, granny granches, granfy krugers as well, and all sorts of amazing variations. And, and you know, you can you can see how it works is that one child hears something and then they kind of, you know, maybe mishear it or they twist it a little bit and so it goes on. And then in the southeast where I grew up, there's a real dairy theme. So um, in Kent, they call them cheesy bugs, as we heard, cheese rockers, cheese logs, um, chisel bugs. And then in some places, the, the monkey comes in. So there's monkey peeds, monkey peas, monkey pigs. They're sour bugs as well, because apparently you can eat a woodlouse if you are so interested. But then Northern Ireland and Scotland, and in fact, New Zealand and Australia as well, perhaps because they have Scottish and Irish communities, call them slaters, as we had in slaty beetles. So it's fascinating. And as so often with dialect jars, because it's oral, we don't have so much written evidence that we can unpack and say it came from here. But for me, the kind of predominant, the thing that unifies all of them is that they're quite cute, all these names. And it's just, I love the fact that there are so many names, but I'd also love to know if in the US, and we have a lot of listeners in the US, whether in fact they also have a huge variation of words for them. As a born again vegetarian, I have to say, I'm shocked at the idea of people eating woodlice. Though once I was in North Africa and was offered as a kind of sweetmeat with my coffee, chocolate-coated cockroaches, uh, bees, wasps, and other insects. Apparently, the crunch combined with the chocolate made them delicious. I didn't uh, partake. No. I decided not to. Stick with chocolate-coloured coffee beans. They're amazing. If you want to get in touch with us, please do, from wherever you are in the world, we'd love to know more about this. We'd love also to have your familial words and phrases. We don't need to be told that it's a Leslie Stephen the father of Virginia Woolf, was not involved in the Oxford English Dictionary. It was the Dictionary of National Biography. Oh, interesting. That he was a pioneer. Okay. So I, I remember that during our little break. Time for one more quick letter. Yes. Uh, and then I want to hear what your trio of words is. Okay. Uh, dear Susie and Giles, Christy Spencer Polk from Portland, Oregon here. Oh, oh there talking you go. about our international following. Yeah. Uh, hello, Portland, Oregon. I absolutely loved your most recent episode, 
Euphuism. Oh, yes. oh, do you remember? This was the word I introduced yes, you to. Yes, love that. Not often that I, I get one up on you. Mm. Anyway, euphuism. Thinking that Orwell came up with this idea of unperson so many decades before the internet and the concept of ghosting. Ah, yes. And the emergence of cancel culture. Yeah. Oh, this is... This is suddenly very topical, isn't yeah. it? As a contemporary means of digital unpersoning, yeah. leaving my spine tingling. Would love to hear you speak about both aforementioned contemporary terms on Something Rhymes with Purple. So basically what Christie's after is a discussion of ghosting mm. and cancel culture. Explain that to people who don't know what ghosting and cancel culture are. I mean, ha- have they been adopted? Are they now new words? Yeah, the so the word cancel, this century at least, is, is- it's been pretty much used of people, hasn't it, as well as events. So if you cancel someone, particularly on social media, you boycott them. You basically do unperson them. You kind of almost make them into a non-entity by withdrawing all attention from them or following of them because you disapprove of something that they've done recently or quite often in the past. It is fascinating because we've had the statue toppling you know, globally recently, haven't we? Which, you know, almost gives a new layer to unpersoning, um, I suppose, because we're, we're, you know, to unperson, just to remind you, in Orwell's day was to basically strip somebody of any level of existence. It's to remove them from the history books as a way of rewriting history. It was to pretend they never existed. It was to vaporise them in Orwell's terms. And then it came to mean to regard them as of no social or political importance. And it's interesting what's been happening with the statues, because obviously this time it's not the state, it's the people who are saying these are no no longer worthy of history, or at least their history needs to be remembered in very, very different terms, um, which is fascinating. Is ghosting part of the same phenomenon? So ghosting is what more is a ghost? kind of what romantic thing. So if you're ghosted ah. romantically, it means that someone that you're involved with suddenly disappears. Um, oh, they don't contact you. They don't, oh. um, yeah, they just literally disappear. You have no idea where they've gone. And it's a so horrible are they becoming a ghost or are you becoming a ghost? Um, in the origin of the phrase. They are becoming the ghost. So suddenly they just literally oh. suddenly disappear. Ghosting itself as a verb goes back centuries. It didn't mean it in this way. It was literally to pretend to be a ghost. So this is quite a new thing. But I think in the 2000s already, people were talking about I'd been ghosted. But yeah, it's that removal of existence that runs through all of this. And it is so, so topical. And of course, what Orwell was protesting against was the fact that the state can decide or any authority can decide what is the truth. And, you know, the state can decide what is worthy of recognition and what isn't and and it's a fascinating subject but also really painful at the moment i want to see a statue put up to you susie dent because you are just amazing (laughs) Uh, a statue oil painting the works i now want you to give us your three words of the week this is susie dent's trio let them trip off your tongue uh, well, they, yes, they will trip off the tongue if I don't forget them, which uh, is quite possible I will. I'll have the lethological at the wrong the wrong moment. But one of the ones talking about pain that I have been thinking of recently is there's an entry in the Oxford English Dictionary that has four, F-O-R, in front of a lot of different adjectives, which basically means exhausted by. So if you are for swunk, you are exhausted by too much work. If you are for wallowed, you are exhausted from tossing and turning all night. And if you are for plaint, P-L-A-I-N-T, you are exhausted from weeping. And I think a lot of us have been feeling real sorrow in recent weeks. So for plaint is my first one. I like that. The next one is, these are a bit negative, sorry about this, but there's 
into despite. I remember reading this in the OED and it kind of made me smile, but it doesn't so much these days. Is to hate someone as much as they hate you. Into Ooh, despite. I like that. Um, <laughs> so mutual dislike. So mm-hmm. I'm going to finish with a more positive one because when everything gets a bit too much, we've talked about the growlery before, which is the place in your house where you can just go and growl and let it all off. Uh, let it all go. And we've talked about frontistry, frontistery, which is a place mm-hmm. for contemplation. But this one is simply a lectory, which is a place to read and escape in a book, literature, whatever is your choice. Lectory. Well, in my lectory mm-hmm. this week, I've been dipping through Dancing by the Light of the Moon, my oh. anthology of poems to learn by heart. And I came across this poem, which I included, that I'd forgotten. Okay. And I think I'm going to try and learn it this week. It's by Philip Larkin. It's called Days. What are days for? Days are where we live. They come, they wake us, time and time over. They are to be happy in. Where can we live but days? Ah, solving that question brings the priest and the doctor in their long coats running over the fields. Wow. That's my poem, and that's been Something Rhymes With Purple. And it's been exciting to be here with you. If you want to be in touch with us, please do. Purple at somethingelse.com. Do tell your friends about us. We're very honoured. We've been in the running for Best Entertainment Podcast in the Podcast Awards, and we've been in the top ten of podcasts in the UK. We want to do that globally. So that's that's our lot. Something Rhymes With Purple is a Something Else production produced by Lawrence Bassett with additional production from Steve Ackerman, Grace Laker and Gully. There you go. Who's snarting away in the background. (laughs) 